I'm William Jess Laird. This is Image Culture. On the show today, I'm talking with writer, curator, and critic Jarrett Ernest, whose 2018 book, What It Means to Write About Art, assembles his conversations with 30 of the most influential American art writers. Jarrett's interviews with figures ranging from Rosalind Krauss to Dave Hickey, Roberta Smith to Kelly Jones, and Jerry Saltz to Hal Foster trace a path through art criticism from the 1960s up to the present moment. His subjects remind us of the diversity of thought that has defined modern art criticism. It's truly a rare thing to find a book that offers such a plethora of ideas about how we think about and relate to art. Here I am with Jarrett Ernest. Now that you're in the middle of the second season, what do you wish you had known at the beginning that you like know now about like doing this thing? Who's doing the interview here? What's going on? What's happening? Well, I'm waiting for you to take the reins, girl. <laughs> this is actually something, you know, it's like a vision of me like trying to be in therapy where it's like I'm really good at resting control. And so I'm really going to try and let you lead the way. But I do have a lot of questions I would ask you if left to my own devices. Well, let's, that's fine. Let's leave you to your own devices. I mean, we should, maybe we should, should start here because you do interviews. Yeah. We both interview artists, right? Mm-hmm. So how do you approach that? Well, like, what's your interviewing style? How would you put it into words? Well, I think that once you get to a certain level with anything that you do, you recognize the extent to which it exceeds your personal position in it. Mm-hmm. With the book of interviews that I, I put together with where I interviewed art critics, I think there is a character that emerges from it, and that character is Jared Ernest. And what the character of the interviewer in that book has anything to do with me, I'm not necessarily the one to say, but I definitely do think of it as something different, and I mm-hmm. think of it as a role. I mean, I would say that my interview style is definitely more like... Um, like a dominatrix with a heart of gold or something <laughs> where it's like, uh, okay. So if you think about, about S and M, the agreement is the consensual agreement is mm-hmm. that you're both performing roles with each other and the job of the dominatrix, which I like the lady version mm-hmm. better is, um, basically to articulate a boundary that you have about whatever sexual experience you want to have, and then to make you feel comfortable enough to push beyond that boundary. Right. Um, And I think that that's what interests me intellectually, is to say, like, all right, you talk about yourself and what you do in these ways. Mm -hmm. I'm going to read everything I can about that and have my own thoughts about it, see the things that you maybe don't want to talk about or you've created structures to avoid, and then create a space in which you feel comfortable enough that we might go into that place. Mm-hmm. And so I think my real interest is thinking, like actually like thinking new thoughts with someone. And that can be really uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm okay with that. <laughs> like my, my interviewer persona is okay with it being very uncomfortable. Right. Who was the first person you interviewed for this book? What was the first one? Dave Hickey. So when I was in art school, I was basically told that Dave Hickey was a bad guy and we weren't supposed to read Dave Hickey because he wrote about beauty and that was inherently bound up with misogyny Mm -hmm. and um, anti-intellectual. And so we were both at a residency for the Robert Rauschenberg Foundation in Captiva. And Mm -hmm. the year, it was kind of in the early stages of it. And the, the time that I was there was quite small. Mm -hmm. Um, It was like me and Dave and like 
four or five other women who were like in their 30s. And I thought, whoa, this is going to be a disaster. Because right at the time, um, Dave had just like made some statements about how identity politics killed the, ruined the art world, or mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. you know something that just seemed ridiculous. And so, and I was just like, I'm going to wear fucking cutoff shorts and like combat boots, and like we're going to not get along. But he, um, I, we, we just started talking about books, and I mm-hmm. just like realized almost instantly that he was a total genius mm-hmm. like an actual genius who had ideas and thoughts and this most beautiful means of expression and i was like whoa like mm-hmm. this guy's amazing so we spent you know at least once or twice a day like having a conversation about art and philosophy and books and you know he's he can go from deleuze to jl austin to tristam shandy to Henry James to, you know, anything that you want to discuss. Mm -hmm. So um, to me, it's like crack, you know, he's like a cowboy angel. And I also witnessed the way he would like intentionally antagonize people. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I liked all of it. So before I left, I said, you know, Dave, you know, I was doing a lot of interviews mostly with artists. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, Dave, we should record some conversations. A lot of what we would talk about was writing, like mm-hmm. the kind of technical aspects of writing, because writing was not my natural place to begin, as I said. Um, I never felt, I feel very, very comfortable in visual and making stuff. Mm-hmm. And writing has been a struggle. And so I think Dave also wanted to help me. Like mm-hmm. he was like, okay, let's talk. I'm, I'm going to show you the crap. I'm going to give you, you know, I'm going to give you some advice about writing. So, <laughs> and he really gave me great advice. Stuff that, that like years later I think about, you know, he says, you know, one thing that he says is that a great writing about art is not a great argument. It's a story with implications. Mm-hmm. That has kind of come back to me a lot. Um, he, he in, in our interview, he kind of diagrammed an imaginary essay that he had once thought about writing on Julian Schnabel and said, well, first I would do this and then this and then this, and then I would do this, this, this. And the whole thing was kind of like a blueprint for like, if you wanted to write a good essay about art Mm. and I've like thought about that I've thought about it teaching art I've teaching writing I've and I've thought about it in my own writing so it really and above all it was really fun Mm -hmm. and I thought that this was a really brilliant guy who had a bad rap Mm -hmm. and so all of those things added up into what was a really important thing for me so I boiled that interview down. I published it in parts in a magazine in San Francisco. And then from there, I started interviewing other writers. And then after I had done a few of them, I had conceived of, of doing it as a project. And so because I went to art school, and the art school I went to was a very conceptual one, I'm very comfortable thinking of like a framework. Like the project is like you create the parameters and then you just do it Mm -hmm. and that's the work and so in a way like the book makes as much sense to me as conceptual art as it does as writing and so I like created the framework and then I just like did the rest of it who did you feel most aligned with well you know there would be different ways of answering that question Mm -hmm. on the one hand on a philosophical level about 
an understanding of what a work of art is. I weirdly felt the closest to Siri Hustved, mm-hmm. who is a novelist, also, I mean, a very prolific essayist. Her conception of art as a kind of quasi-subjectivity that intermediates between the person looking at it, the person who made it, and it's like porous to the world in all kinds of ways. The way that she articulated her her understanding of an artwork is as closest to mine as anyone in the book. However, her sensibility is very, very different from mine. Um, you know, she's um, synesthetic and is everything's very precious and a little neurotic mm-hmm. and, um, and wonderful. But, um, you know, my whole energy is much more on the one hand it's like much more loose and open on the other hand it's very harsh as you've experienced so uh not that harsh i would you know i would say that every one of them i had a lot of overlap with also chris kraus i think Mm -hmm. is someone that i have overlapped a lot with as a writer i think we have almost exactly the same taste which is something that I hated for a long time because she would write about everything that I would want to write about, but like, just like, like her instead of me. And I was just like, ah, oh. but then I just got over <laughs> it and I like love, I mean, it's like the Simone Vey and the aliens and the whole thing and her mode of writing, um, which is the kind of like the weird first person narrative, but that's treated as fiction. Mm-hmm that is was one that was very liberating for me and as i tried to write that way recently the i completely disappeared from the the essay and so that's kind of been my weird surprise as i've been writing these things that seem to me like chris kraus essays but without the chris kraus character i.e the jared Ernest character it's like all the other characters like 19th century fiction basically when you first went to art school you mm-hmm. weren't set out to be a writer Mm-mm. What no. Do you, what do you think you were there to do? Well, I was a painter, and I painted every day of my life, um, all, like alone. I loved, and I still love painting. Painting's probably my favorite. I love everything. Um, what sort yeah. of painting were you into, though? What did they look like when you went in? Um, you know, I made abstract paintings, and I made figurative paintings. I didn't. I really didn't see hierarchical distinction between those. But um, they were big. My parents have hundreds of them. They're mm-hmm. like so faggy. There's like zero chill, which I'm just really embracing as like my uh, fate. Oh, know? yeah. So it's like my, my parents' um, dining room. There's like a painting of like like a six foot painting of like me and Sylvia Plath like pouting next to each other. Oh, my God. <laughs> with like the sun setting behind us. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's quite a sight. Are you still painting? Like do you show painting? No, I will show things. Yeah, I make stuff. I make photographs and drawings and watercolors, and I do actions that I think of as art. But I don't. Um, I made a kind of like decision that I was like, I'm going to be a writer. I'm going to learn how to be a writer. But the way that I conceive of everything is through making stuff. Hmm. And um, also, I'm not like precious enough about it that I'm not like I'll never show my art. But it's just like it's not my priority. Hmm. And, um, you know, I think it also gets to the question of, like, the conception of what a work of art is. And one of the artists that's the most meaningful to me is Genesis Breyer Peorich, who is, like, a musician and performance artist. And Genesis is one of those people who was really trying to push art and life together. And I feel very strongly or have 
historically felt very strongly that they're not the same thing, art and life. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think the truth is the way I feel about life is is much more like they're together. Like, I, I think of all of the decisions that you make, you either are making something that is going to bring your life closer into alignment with a certain way of being mm -hmm. or push it farther away. And to me, that's an artistic decision. So it's like I meet people, especially I talk to younger artists who are graduating from school mm -hmm. and they're like, they want to know, like, how do they make a living as an artist? How do they start working? And, you know, to me, it's like not that hard. It's like, you either prioritize everything else around making your art or you shouldn't make art. Mm. So it's like may every decision I've ever made have been about my freedom, have been about the freedom, whether, and whether that means like I sleep on the floor and live in a studio with no bathroom, like a, an art studio with no bathroom. Like I did that. Mm -hmm. And I had no money coming from anywhere else. I completely was on my own. And, you know, it didn't seem like punishment. You know, it's not like... You know, I was, I felt like it was a gift to have time. And the more, the busier I get, the more I realize that time is like the most, it's the only thing that really matters. Like I want to spend my time looking at this, thinking about this, talking to this. That's the primary arbiter of value and mm -hmm. human meaning is that I want to spend my time and energy looking at or thinking about this or spending it with these people. And that means that you're already dealing with art as a different kind of construction of value and of your life than is a monetary system. Mm -hmm. And I think the big struggle that I have as a writer and as someone in the art world is that the only system that we have as a culture for talking about value is monetary. Mm -hmm. That is what people, that's what the majority of writing about art is about. It's about the money mm -hmm. or it's about, you know, the gallery that represents them or it's about this, it's about social status, whatever. All that stuff I don't care about. Mm -hmm. All I care about is art. And to me, art is about life and a certain kind of life in which you have created an attempt. You know, it's really about an attempt to understand or be as, as rigorously reflective and present as possible. And so now I'm just shocked that we live in this art scene where it's as though everyone's competing to be in, on the PTA. Like anything that would um, not be okay in like a suburban middle-class context is like not okay. Hmm. And I'm just like, you know, yet some people are bad people. Those bad people might actually be good artists. The question that is interesting to me is a question of like, is the art good more than like, is the person good? Hmm. And I feel like we're living in a situation where that is not on the table. Like you cannot have something that is a good artwork that has really bad politics. No one makes that argument now. And not that I like I, you know, I believe in good politics. You know, it's like I want to, you know, more equitable, you know, free, just society. But um, why is that? I mean, why? Like, why, why do, do I want that society? No. no, I know why you want that society. But why do you think that's the case? Like, why is that the predicament that you're in? Because I think that it's a. Uh, both that it is easier to talk about those things, um, those larger structures in society are really important and need to be addressed. Mm -hmm. Step one, they're important. 
Um, but step two is that it's easier to talk about those things than to talk about art. And it is not easy to say this is good politics, but this is shitty art. Mm-hmm. And um, because like the politics trumps the art. That's the problem I have with it. Mm-hmm. Basically, it's, it's, a, it's a very old question, right? It's like, can, can a, a morally corrupt person make work that is, how would I say it, worthwhile or valid or, or inherently good? You know what I mean? Well, it's not just that. It's that, okay, there's two ways of answering this. One, it's that everyone is acting like there's a complete co- transparent collapse between whatever identity category it is between the person who made the art mm-hmm. and the art itself. And uh, we all know that that's not true. <laughs> like there, there's like a lot of weird distinctions between those things that have to be drawn. And I think that my particular work as a writer is about looking in that gray space between them. Like mm-hmm. I'm very interested in the artist and I'm very interested in the art artwork and I don't want to reduce one of them to the other that's Mm -hmm. one answer the other answer is the reason why I think we're in this situation is that the terms of art that at one point were foundational Mm -hmm. and didn't even need to be addressed to the extent that they didn't even need to be spoken have shifted so dramatically that we're not even cognizant of them and I think that that has to do with changes in image, the roles of images in our culture and how they relate to technology. So let's get into that a little bit. Sure. Okay. Since this is the image culture podcast, (laughs) you're you're listening to it. Okay. So the terms have shifted, right? From what to what? All right. Here's the thing. For most of human experience... And we're talking about the long history of human experience Mm -hmm. before, like, I'm willing to go like a hundred thousand years before there's writing. But if you want to start with writing, that's cool. Okay. There were things that people made that Uh were images, whether they were objects or drawings that, um, you would experience in person and that direct experience would be mediated by or would be contingent upon a whole host of material and environmental factors that Mm -hmm. would produce an experience whether that is the shape of the room it's in whether that's the way that the light would bounce off those literal materials that make an image with the invention of writing you get a kind of different way that images relate to writing but that doesn't change the fundamental dynamic although you do get this amazing thing where writing can conjure images in your head which Mm -hmm. is imagination it's sort of different what i think sorry very hard to relate to a time when that was before that was the case you know what i mean when images could be writing writing makes images in your head i mean i don't mean to distract you keep going well i think but even up until the origins of, of technical reproduction, when you're talking about an, a painting, mm-hmm. you're talking about a physical object mm-hmm. that has material qualities. And that, that um, the specificity of that experience doesn't have to be narrated because it's like, well, that's what it means to look at a painting. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of the big reasons why I want to torch art history to the ground is that from the very beginning, art history was contingent on a kind of photomechanical reproduction that um, stripped out from the physical object a status as an image mm-hmm. that could be communicated across the um, reproduction apparatus. And that kind of changed the way that we think of images and its relationship to objects, but that's one thing. 
jump cut to the way that digital technologies relate to images now, to the extent that it is not a given that in order to see a painting, you have to physically look at the painting. Mm -hmm. But now there is a thing where it's like, okay, we have to describe what a painting is and what a painting has changed. And so I'm not even saying like, oh, the only way to understand a painting is as a physical object that you see in space with your human eyes. But we sure as hell have to distinguish seeing a physical object in space with your human eyes from seeing something on an Instagram post. Right. And the majority of the way that people see art now is through screens yeah. in places that they do not live. Mm -hmm. So that's what I mean about when I say that the terms of the artwork in a perceptual way and as a kind of discursive way have shifted so drastically in ways that no, very, very, very few people have talked about. And that's one of the reasons why I think it is so difficult to talk about an artwork as a work of art in and of itself because in a real way, people don't even know what you're saying. Hmm. Like you, you have to do so much work to explain what you're talking about before you even get to what you mean to say. And so when you, it's just so much easier to talk about it as money. Hmm. It's so much easier to talk about it as, as identity value. category, yeah. as value, as politics, as whatever. And it's like, I read a lot of art criticism. Mm -hmm. It is not a happy experience, frankly. <laughs> and a lot of it, I just like, I think like, what are we even talking about? Mm -hmm. Are you resigned? Resigned in what way? I don't know. What's your way forward as a writer, as a person in that society? I mean, you I wouldn't say you're upset by it, but I mean, <laughs> um, I I alternate between being extremely um, like Pollyanna-ish, mm -hmm. like oh, you know, look, Mrs. Snow, this prism is a rainbow maker, <laughs> um, and also just completely limitless despair. And I think that the relationship between those two things is, is like hot and cold air that like churn and like make a hurricane. So, or like run in, you know, combustion engine. So I have a lot of ideas about what might be necessary and energy to do it. But I don't necessarily, I wouldn't say that I'm optimistic about it. To use my book as an example, there's a, a lot of different... Okay, so there's something that's happening right now in intellectual culture, which is like every institutional authority is up in the air and it's destabilized. Yeah. And nobody knows what the fuck is going on. And what we do know is that universities are broken. They're basically immoral. And um, regardless, the edifice of art history as it emerged in the 19th century has crumbled. And it's crumbling all around them. The people who have operated this revolution in the starting in the 70s but triumphing in the late 80s and early 90s around a certain paradigm of art that was remade in their image okay they achieved that they slaughtered all the villagers and they've built their castle and there's no one to live in the castle like there's n there's literally not a future mm -hmm. it's like there is a period of egyptian uh history where they intermarried brother and sister for like three generations and by the third generation they couldn't have children yeah and so then it's like okay we're like a dynastic structure of power like how do we carry on that we ran ourselves into the ground at this one well you know no in the case of ancient egypt 
Egypt, it was fucking awesome. Like those, all those pharaohs were amazing. <laughs> they were at the best time of, they were having the time of their life, but it's like, and who will now take over? Uh-huh. And I think that you could look at the early 21st century art historical situation in America and see a kind of intellectual desperation around this question because you're looking at multiple generations of students of the original Octoberists who their students have maintained the county, the, the official line. And, and there's not like almost like a new capacity for ideas. You know, it just, it doesn't right. feel relevant. It's not a thing. Mm-hmm. His October is a historical project that somehow still exists. So, Do you read it? Do you still read it? No, but no one does. <laughs> have you ever, have you, I mean, have you ever met someone that was like, Oh, girl this <laughs> like this, this month's october you gotta get in yeah. it no, yeah, no I know. It, you know so it's like okay that's a thing all right so there's something that's actively happening with the october people where they're all trying to act like they always loved painting mm-hmm. like painting was never dead painting was never morally corrupt painting was never the problem we all loved painting and so like Krauss said that to me Hal Foster when I asked him that question was like oh, you, you, you misread my work like I mm-hmm. love painting it's like no girl I've got the receipts they're called published books <laughs> that you wrote and so instead of actually reflecting on that and being like, well, turns out the arguments we made for postmodernism didn't play out the way we thought. And mm-hmm. actually anything can be commodified. And actually it's way easier to commodify conceptual practice and uh, performance art than anything else mm-hmm. because you don't have the pesky business of a material object getting in the way of its transformation into capital. You get into this weird thing where it's like, okay, like how can you even be honest about what's going on if you can't admit that like, your participation in this thing did not work out how you wanted it to. Mm -hmm. And I honestly think in a larger sense, that's a poignant situation because I think that's the history of, of the world. Like that's why literature exists. Like the best intentions have always come back to the history of, of literature is, is stories of people with the best intentions living with the unforeseen consequences of their actions. And we have to rise to the occasion to confront that reality. I think the most, the most brave thing that we can do is, is try and be honest about what's going on. And the thing is that what's going on is not good. You know, it's like a bad situation. So, um, and we're all a part of it, you know, like everyone listening to this podcast, like Mm -hmm. you're a part of it. And, um, I don't know, we went kind of far afield. But I, this is this is kind of like one thing that I've been trying to think through in terms of the state of art writing. And, and I'm not saying that I even have like an optimistic perspective on it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's obvious that I don't. I think that what you're doing with your podcast, which is one of the reasons why I was interested to talk to you, is... Yeah. is um, is something that's more hopeful. Like, I think that we're entering into a world that is like um, an orature oral situation where we're talking. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things that is hopeful, but it also feels like you have to start from zero, like baby steps, like, oh, this is how it sounds when smart people talk to each other about art. Mm -hmm. And um, maybe that's condescending, but... No, but I I, I don't think it necessarily is, because that's kind of what I was saying before. I, I think that I think that most people don't really understand how to how to talk about art. 
you know? And it's like not their fault. No, like, it's, it's not. not. Like, here's the other thing. My background is from a freakish age, mm-hmm. like a little like a swamp baby. Like I grew up in the middle of nowhere in a swamp. Mm-hmm. And from this freaky childhood age, I just loved art and I felt like I had an intuitive understanding of what it was. Do you can you can you locate what that comes from? Sure. Well, I mean, it comes from God. Ever heard of it? <laughs> um, no. 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 I mean, I th- what I mean to say is that even before, and this is why the way I'm also not totally hopeless about the structures of image technologies now, because mm-hmm. you know, I grew up in the middle of nowhere to a family that didn't know anything about art, and I saw pictures of art in books, and I drew. And I remember seeing a picture of like a Van Gogh painting and realizing that it was not just like a sun, it wasn't a flower. Mm-hmm. It was a picture of a flower that l- allowed you to understand the feelings of the person who made it. I mean, I couldn't have articulated it to you as a seven year old, but that's what I understood about what it was. Yeah. And I got that. I just have that kind of... So, I, I, I mean, that's intoxicating. Mm-hmm. It's like the same way that you learn how to read. You're like, these symbols make a word and the word is an idea. It was like pictures are ideas in which someone is transmitting to you their thoughts and feelings through time and space. It's like a cheat code. Is that like a straight person reference? Is that a video game? <laughs> I don't know if it's like a cheat code is what I'm trying to say, but I do know that it is like a really amazing thing that I always just felt as a child. Mm -hmm. And so, and that was not even through looking at a painting in person. That was through seeing a book. Mm -hmm. It was a long time before I saw a physical art object. And so I'm not discounting the ability of a tra- of a re- reproduction to carry meaning. Mm-hmm. But what I did learn when I started looking at paintings in person was that they had all of this other information that I didn't know from looking at books. Mm-hmm. First of all, because scale is different. Every square inch of a work of art has, has meaning. Like it, it is the way it is in a way that's different than a photograph. Mm-hmm. It took me a long time actually to be interested in photography actually because the way that photographs make meaning as a medium is so different than mm-hmm. um, a painting or a sculpture. So um, yeah, that's what you asked me to look at that. You know, I, I can really see uh, you started off and you're a painter, right? And then it's conceptual photography or, or, or critical theory around photography that sort of starts to pull you away from that. I mean, I can really see that. But I also hated it. Like this is, I also famously was in photo theory classes where I was with a bunch of photographers and me being like, yeah, but I don't really think this is art. Mm-hmm. Like at me, you know, like c- come for me. <laughs> and the big, the big um, sorrow of my life is that people didn't, you know, didn't want to fight and be like, actually, Jeff Wall is good, you know? And so I think that that's the other reason why I went into criticism is that I really find disagreement to be a generative thing because, like, I don't know what I know. Like, I'll say something to see if I think it's true. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not invested in it. I'm really invested in thinking. Mm -hmm. So what this reminds me about is that for a really long time, 
I had this crisis precisely pre precisely around thinking and how it turns into something else. Mm -hmm. And I was reading all of Hannah Arendt. You know, I graduated from art school. I was living in this studio apartment with my boyfriend in San Francisco, like listening to like Grace Jones records and like making dinner together as like 21 year olds. And I was, I read all of Hannah Arendt and one of the th reasons why Hannah Arendt attracted me was because it was really this question of like, what is thinking? What is the nature of thought? Because I really have always felt like that that was what I cared the most about. Mm -hmm. And I, it didn't matter to me or the, the, the place where it became problematic was when those thoughts then became a form or like a, something that was static, like writing, like the whole idea of like, I could think and talk all day long, but like it becoming writing was really a crisis. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that Aaron talks about, and there was this, there was one essay that was particularly important to me, which was called Thinking and Moral Consideration, which is dedicated to the poet W.H. Uh, Auden. And in thinking and moral consideration, she kind of tries to figure out, like, okay, what is the difference between thinking and and um, doing other things? Mm -hmm. And she says that thinking is not useful. Like, I mean, not, not not useful. It's not procreative. It doesn't make anything happen in the world. Pure thinking has no end beyond its own operation of thought. Mm -hmm. So, okay, I felt very comfortable with that. Yeah. But then the next step is what's what's so good about it you know like why do it if it doesn't build a house why think yeah why think yeah and so ultimately she develops this argument which also relates obviously to the book that she wrote on Eichmann in Jerusalem which is about thinking is predisposing you to make certain kinds of moral judgments about yourself and the world and but but because you've developed this muscle of, of capability of thought and um, and that when that thought then becomes applied, it it um, disposes you in towards distinguishing between good and evil. But the thing that was like so useful to me about that was that they were different. Like, okay, thinking is a thing, and then doing is a different thing. And it was a long time, like a very agonized time, where I was trying to figure out how to do anything. Mm -hmm. And it's like when I graduated from art school, it was like, what was I doing? You know, yeah. it's like, what, what was I? I didn't know how to make anything. I wasn't interested in making mm -hmm. for a long time, even though I felt most at home making. So, you know, this question of thinking. And of writing, right? Yeah, well, writing was always a problem because it felt like so stable, like it felt like, okay, I had this thought and then it turned into a piece of writing and then it's that, and now I have to live with that. And that's actually why I started doing interviews mm. was it seemed like this middle ground where I could figure out a way of writing through the fluid back and forth of dialogic thought. It's only recently, it's after a year, I mean, it's been like a decade of like me with my nose to the grindstone trying to learn how to write that I f started to feel the capacity in which writing itself is a way of making meaning of the world 
it's a way of making more meaning than not writing. Mm -hmm. You know, that sounds kind of weird to say, but I think it's sort of, I think with anything, it's like exercise where it's like, you know, you start lifting weights and you can lift like, I don't know, like 10 pounds or whatever. And you just keep doing it and suddenly you can like lift a lot of weight. Mm -hmm. I think everything you do is like that. And so it's like, you, I meet people, students who are like, oh, I can't read that much. It's like, well, you know, if you just read more, you would be able to read a lot more. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing with like writing. It's like um, having really worked at these muscles, I feel like, oh, okay, now I understand something about it. It doesn't mean that I'm where I want to be, but it means that I kind of start to feel that special feeling where it's like, oh, like I can understand something about my experience through writing that I couldn't have understood not writing about it. That's that's interesting that that interviews are kind of like a, a gateway to that. Well, it could be. I mean, it's funny because I this I just wrote an essay about a, that I really cared about. Um, Thanks. I, I, I just wrote this essay that I really love in which I've, I took about 10 interviews that I did and I wove them into a story about someone who died, who I couldn't have interviewed, who's a designer named Willie Smith. And I um, sent it to Peter, my friend Peter Sheldahl because we send each other writing back and forth. And he said, you know, his wife, his name's Brooke, and she's wonderful. And um, she said, you know, Brooke said, why don't you try and write the way you talk? And I was just like, yeah, that's like the struggle of my whole existence. <laughs> but but yeah. on a fundamental level, you know, I spent a lot of time trying to make those the same thing. Like if only, like I had this fantasy, if only writing could be like talking. Yeah. If only writing could be like being alive. Yeah. But it fundamentally isn't, mm -hmm. you know? And that's something that Lynn Tillman says in the interview I did with her that's in my book that has really stuck with me, where she said, you are not something on the page. It is never going to be you. Mm -hmm. And so you have to start thinking of it as a construction. As a persona. Not, not even just as a persona, but as, but yeah, as a character. The thing about the persona that's so funny is um, like the way that I first got interested in criticism when I was in high school was that, you know, I was really seriously into painting and I painted every day for hours and I thought, you know, like film, I didn't know that films were art, you know, like whatever, because I'd never seen like a real film. I'd seen Hollywood movies on television. I'd seen Showgirls, which is still to this day my favorite movie, <laughs> but um, I didn't, I wasn't aware yet that Showgirls was a masterpiece of aesthetic film. And so I went to this like summer camp in North Carolina that was called Governor School, which was like free for people to go to. And I was there for art and I had a teacher that was really into film and he did a film series that was like standards of like European art house cinema. Mm -hmm. And I didn't go to a lot of them, but I went to uh, one that I saw was an Ingmar Bergman movie called Persona, which like as a little no chill faggot in the South, I was just like, oh my God, this is the best work of art I've ever seen. <laughs> 
like literal best work of art. <laughs> so and intense. So intense, as you can tell, yeah. I'm like a very casual person. <laughs> so I got the DVD of it and I like watched it every day and I drew every oh picture God. of it out of my notebook. And then I, I was like not content with that. I wanted to read everything that I could find that was written about it. Mm -hmm. And the British Film Institute publishes those little anthologies which are like criti critical anthologies around different films. So I got the one on Persona and I read all of them, and the only one that I thought really helped me understand something about the film that I didn't know before was by someone I'd never heard of named Susan Sontag? <laughs> I don't know who... Susan Sontag? Like, tag? Like, I don't know. So I was just like, I don't know who she is, yeah. but I know that this essay made me appreciate and enjoy this thing that I had seen like a hundred times more after I read it. Yeah. So I got one of her books of essays, um, Styles of Radical Will, because also, first of all, amazing title. And that was really the first idea I ever had about criticism existing as a thing, as like a thing that would be worth doing. And I think that it is still my paradigm for, um, for criticism, which is that it should be something that, first of all, stands up on its own and then helps you understand the, th the work of art which you care about as more mysterious, more important, more beautiful than you thought it was before you had read it. I think that's a great standard for criticism. <laughs> I really yeah, think it well, is. Well, good. Now let's go write some of it. <laughs> Jared Arnest, thank you so much. Oh, thanks. Before we wrap up the show, I'd like to take a moment to remember the groundbreaking art writer, Douglas Crimp, who recently passed away. It's difficult to imagine a book like Jarrett's without Douglas Crimp's voice. Very few writers have had such a massive impact on the way that we understand an entire generation of artists. There really is no pictures generation without Douglas Crimp. If you haven't read it, Crimp's memoir, Before Pictures, is a beautiful way into understanding his life. It's one of my favorite books, and I think everyone who cares about art should read it. This show is produced by Sarah Levine. Our music is by Jack and Eliza. You can find my portrait of Jarrett, as well as all our guests, at williamjesslair.com slash imageculture. Thanks so much for listening.